Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest question, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is a serial founder who started selling t-shirts at 15 and then selling rice in plastic bags as a remedy for wet cell phone to college students to now running successful ventures for the last 10 years, particularly in the technology and software space. While running her own tech services company, she has led teams across the country to first place victory, multiple startup weekends and inspiring initial investors. With an outcry to help her fellow transgender community, she's been fiercely developing an app called Solace for support and guidance through a time of distress of gender transition, which has garnered support from across the nation, including domination of first place in the only LGBTQ-themed startup weekend in the world called Hackout, where she competed with groups from New York, the Dominican Republic, and even Canada. Simultaneously, she has taken on disrupting the dating app industry through crowdsource and gamified matchmaking um, through an app called Gravity, which went from napkin sketch, gathering a team, conducting a 300-person market research, building a tech MVP, outlining a financial plan, and successfully pitching their company in 54 hours. Since then, she has secured a 25K investment and completed front-end development and well on its way to a series seed funding. She's been featured in GeekWire, Forbes, TEDx, and countless local community publications. And with a strong sense of community advocacy and self-labeled relentless optimism, she's also sat on the board of directors for the Inland Northwest Business Alliance and Greater Spokane Progress, and took her entrepreneurial powers to run for political office in 2018 as county commissioner. I'm honored to welcome the founder and CEO of FireDove Technology, Solace and Gravity, and a person who seems to come up with their best ideas for startups while at the bar, Robbie Catherine Anthony. That's quite the introduction. Altogether, you make me sound a lot more mythic than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, uh, before we get um, a little bit into you and what you're doing, um, tell me how you got started in entrepreneurship and like what gave you that bug to start diving into this. Yeah, yeah. I um. Yeah, really, it started back in high school. I was bored during my Algebra two trigonometry class, and I had these notebooks I would just sketch in and doodle and all these different things. And so, mm-hmm. you know, rather than paying attention to the, uh, the teacher, I decided to sketch out what I thought were humorous and admittedly extremely crude uh, T-shirts at the time. <laughs> and so I got together with uh, one of my friends, and I said, hey, let's print some T-shirts and start selling them to the uh, local student population. And so right. we did. And after our first order, um, I thought uh, our, we weren't having a good enough margin. You know, we weren't making a ton of money. And I, it was some profanity-laced, you know, epiphany of just like, we should buy our own effing t-shirt printer or something like that. And so we did. And we just saw marginal success kind of come from that. And um, But yeah, we just uh, kept on um, building after that. I don't know. I mean... Yeah, I think most people will who start companies start multiple, and I'm just lucky to have the time to start so many. Yeah, it's like once you once you've done it and once you've seen it, you can't go back. It's so hard. It's addictive. Yeah, absolutely. So, what have you learned from some of the businesses that didn't work out in the past, and how have they helped you on your current projects? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely having a solid co-founder is by far and away the most important part of any enterprise I started. Uh, when I look at the failures, uh, you can trace some of them to just not having a solid enough working relationship with whomever mm -hmm. it is. And that was kind of the biggest um, biggest uh, hurdle that we faced with every new enterprise. Like, who am I going to build this with? Um, the other one is that a lot of it is just kind of timing and luck. You know, we built some right. hardware ventures that were just a little bit too far in the future. Like we've mm -hmm. seen some of our products and patents materialize into really commonly available products. Um, and we were just, we were too early for it. You know, we kind of saw around the curve of innovation, which is exciting, but just the market and investors weren't ready for it. So, you know, that's pretty much where all failure roots from. It's either a staffing issue or just, you know, unfortunately just bad timing. Right. And you mentioned that, you know, finding a good co-founder is a really important thing. How do you usually go about vetting um, who a good co-founder for your project will be? Yeah, I mean, I think I got lucky because for the first eight year, eight or nine years of my entrepreneurship, um, I had one really solid co-founder mm -hmm. um, and him and I started, I think, 15 or 16 ventures between us. And oh, wow. Some really, really took off and others, you know, flopped, you know, within a week. So right. um, we just, we learned how to argue very effectively. And right. I think that's what kind of gave us the magic because neither of us would relent on, relent on a point until we'd gotten to um, some sense of consensus. And I, I think that was really effective. These days, I've just gotten lucky that I have stumbled into people through my various different endeavors. I end up inadvertently working with them on a project for one reason or another. And uh, we'll, we just end up having a good working relationship. Like for Gravity and Solace, the co-founder of that um, and my business partner actually worked on my political team in 2018 when I ran for office. Oh, wow. And so after we lost the election, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I see this startup weekend and I call up Patrick and I say, hey, I just need you for one weekend. I can't do this alone. <laughs> And uh, he said, sure. And yeah, uh, almost a year later, we've been working on, you know, two startups and just hammering away at things. Yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful way to sort of vet people out is, you know, work on other projects with them, maybe something smaller, and see how you actually work as a, a dynamic as a partnership. And then, hey, if this thing's really good, you know, go after it with something bigger. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, all, all good partnerships come with the growing pains. But you know, the, the best um, indicator of if a partnership is going to be lasting is how do both partners feel after that first business fight? Mm. And it's it's got to be, you know, like knockout punches, like <laughs> everyone's feeling bruised and bloodied at the end of it. But if both people can walk away from it feeling reasonably heard that, uh, you know, you're still on the same team, um, that that in my mind is the indicator of if it's going to exist. But if both people walk away feeling unhappy and they start harboring feelings, um, then it's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. And it, it sounds basic, but I don't think most people want to think through that because when you start a business with someone, it's like, oh, well, we're just going to make billions together, <laughs> right. um, <laughs> which is certainly the goal. But um, you, you do really have to kind of prepare for the worst from day one and, and be ready to deal with it, at least in, in my experience. Absolutely. So you guys are working on Solace and Gravity um, kind of simultaneously. Tell me about how these started up, how they came about, and then why you're adamant about working on them at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So Gravity was just more or less a general reflection um, that the current dating apps 
what's the strategic way to put this, uh, suck, for lack of mm -hmm. a better word. And so we, we thought we could build something better. We saw that the market was going to make a, a tectonic change one way or the other. You know, the swipe right, swipe left paradigm was getting oversaturated. Right. User satisfaction was extraordinarily high. Um, and, and you can see when there's major shifts in technology, this happens. So, you know, take Uber, for example. You know, people were just absolutely fed up with taxis. And so they made the shift to this new uh, platform. And we saw the same thing happening in the dating market. So, um, yeah, we just kind of ran at it with the, uh, the startup weekend, Spokane in November. Um, we kind of swept through that real quickly, took first place went through a local accelerator program here in Spokane, Washington. It's called Mind to Market. And, you know, since then we've just been kind of relentlessly pitching to try to get that first investment. And mm -hmm. that's, that's really been hard, especially as two LGBT founders. And, um, you know, kind of can sometimes bring out the worst in people in terms right. of how they invest and interact with us. So, in between fundraising for Gravity, we had this opportunity to go to this LGBT um, uh, hackathon, uh, startup weekend type competition. And, and for us, it was really refreshing because we knew we could work with a, with a group of our peers that we would not be judged for our appearances, how we sound, or you yeah. know, any of those other details. And truly, the value of our work would be um, you know, looked at and evaluated rather than anything else. Right. And so when we decided what to build down there, we said, let's build something for this community because we know how rough of a ride it's been for us. What can we do to make technology, um, you know, augment the lives of other people, you know, within this small community. And so as we kept on going along that process, we ultimately identified that Solace was never going to be a, a for-profit venture, that it had to be a nonprofit for it to be successful and reach the largest, largest audience. And I think that's what led us to being able to run Gravity and Solace in tandem because while they're both enterprises, one is completely in the for-profit world and then the other is completely in the for-profit world. And it's just, it's, it's all the same interactions. Like, you know, in for-profit, there is venture capitalists. In non-profit, there's foundations. Mm -hmm. um, but these people also run in different circles so there's not overlap. There's not really concern of us, you know, trying to sell our for-profit idea and then someone, you know, also being like, well, hey, actually you hit me up last month for money for your nonprofit. <laughs> right. I only do one. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of why we're doing both and why I think we can. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned some of the, you know, some of the struggles being in, the LGBTQ community um, of how that shows up as a founder. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that and how that kind of, not only are you fighting, you know, being a founder and all of the startup with that, but adding that on top. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I describe myself as a, a woman and tra transition. Uh, other people use terminology such as trans woman or transgender woman. Um, I have a couple of unique things working against me in terms of being received as that, uh, specifically my voice. Mm -hmm. um, I've used it for you know over a decade to sell things. I have a very emphatic pitch style. Um, you know, I try to speak very um, in a very commanding and definitive tone. Right. So when I am presenting to investors, they see you know this admittedly six foot four, kind of somewhat out of place character. Um, you know, maybe wearing a dress or something, and then this voice comes out, mm -hmm. and kind of all their most negative biases will be there. 
Mm. And we'll get done with a pitch and we'll have people come up to us and they'll be like, we thought you were going to be a total train wreck, but you blew us away. Yeah. And the compliment on the front end of that is kind of interesting, but the back end is, well, there's other people pitching. You've never heard anything about our business. You never heard anything about these other businesses. What led you to draw the conclusion that you thought we were going to be terrible before you knew anything about us? Right. And so it's just, it's things like that. And it materializes in a lot of different areas. You know, um, I, I think there is just something to be said that people like to do deals with folks that look like them. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's just a little bit of bias there. And considering that there's not a lot of people like me out there, um, for some reason that kind of elevates investors risk assessments of if we're going to be successful or not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's just kind of, the, the struggle of, you know, I, if we were, if my co-founder and I kind of fit the majority profile of someone in this area or elsewhere, um, and, and this is not trying to sound overly callous, but we would have been fully funded at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I wasn't always out. I wasn't always trans in the public light. And so I have seen how easy doors open for other startups when you are presumed presumed to be in the majority. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it, it ain't fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, throughout your work, whether it's in fire dove or in your app projects, um, or even running, you know, for, um, County commissioner, there's this thread of creating solutions for communities who are underrepresented. And I wanted to know how that kind of fuels you as an entrepreneur. It sounds like it's coming a lot through, um, solace and your various works. Yeah. I mean, I think end of the day, the, the job is just to, to visually demonstrate that someone like me is, is capable of punching at that highest level. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the work and the, the drive comes from because, you know, I have to work so much harder, so much harder than my counterparts to be taken seriously. And so my hope is that when people finally do look at my work and give it a fair shake, they can realize that I was always pulling in a lot more than someone sitting, you know, to the left of me that kind of fits in a bit better. Right. Um, so whether it is running for office or running a couple of companies, um, I like to be there to be able to show people that folk like me aren't scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of the election, uh, despite the loss, uh, it was one of the coolest nights of my life because uh, there was an election party. There was a lot of people there. It was for all the other candidates. And uh, I had a number of parents come up to me, but one in particular really stood out and they said, hey, I just want you to know I'm not big into politics, but I brought my kid with me and they're maybe six or seven and they're trans. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to see that someone like them could be up on the stage, you know, running for office, hitting these lofty heights. And, um, you know, it's moments like that that really crystallize why it's important to be out and visible and... um, I don't know. It's, it's, I have so many other things to do in terms of like why to make these ventures successful, but that's certainly kind of a, a cornerstone of, okay, why do I get up today? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important to remember those small moments that give you that fuel as an entrepreneur. You know, when things start getting hard, you keep getting the door shut on you. It's like, oh, well, look back, remember these people that I'm working so hard for. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, in both of your apps, you're sort of using, you know, a data-driven technology 
to um, provide that creative solution. How mm-hmm. can small businesses and entrepreneurs who are first starting out utilize data and technology for their ideas? Yeah, I mean, the way the world is moving, especially with the advent of machine learning, uh, data is just going to become that much more um, integrated into everything we do. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to hire a you know recent MIT grad to build yourself you know machine learning application because for all intents and purposes you don't need that kind of horsepower. Right. Uh, you can start with simple things like a spreadsheet, and you can apply a trend line to it, and that's a very simple way to forecast and use that data. And you know the more numbers you can show to be able to kind of prove your efficacy. I think the less questions you get down the road. So like for FireDev, when we first started, um, our hourly rate was like $25 an hour or something like that. Um, and we would track every hour of the day to like the 15 minute interval. Mm-hmm. And so when we got done with the client project, we would show them, you know, this kind of like attorney-esque like um, receipt of all the time mm-hmm. spent. And we did that for about a good year. We stopped the practice because um, we didn't really need to do it anymore. But for us, it was a way to get our name out there as really credible individuals and that people's money was being well spent. So it's things like that that I think data is really important, um, especially with the forecasting piece. I mean, trying to figure out how much money you're going to make that year, what the ROI is going to be. Um, it's not complicated formulas in Excel or numbers or whatever spreadsheet app you use, but I I think it's really healthy for everyone to have some sort of data ritual, either at the start of their day or at the end of the day in which you just total up your KPIs, whatever those are. And it allows you to either say, okay, this is where I was at yesterday and this is how I'm going to charter, you know, the rest of my day. Or if you do it at the end of the day, you can look back on all of the numbers and you can say, okay, I did pretty well. So I don't yeah. know. I find three things to document apart from your cash flow, you know, because everyone watches that. <laughs> right. And just document the living hell out of it and see if something interesting comes of it. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's so important to have those key metrics that you are following. And um, sometimes we forget that in business. But, um, you know, something like in my own life, um, what you don't track doesn't grow. And so like when I work out in the gym, like I'm tracking all those numbers. And so why wouldn't I take that same set of ideas, bring it to my business, track the things in there, they're going to help your business grow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think the other thing that people, the, the really kind of practical way to take this on is that most folk, or at least most folks should write a business plan or an organizational plan if you're in the nonprofit industry. Mm-hmm. And People usually think of that as like just the initial document and then they throw it on the bookshelf and it just collects dust. Yeah, right. uh, just keep updating it. Like we're at the like 47th version of our organizational plan with Solace. Yeah. We keep adding into it. And ultimately at the, at the end of the day, you get this really interesting kind of tome of data. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that if you're working out and you can see muscle growth, right. then you can see your business growth and you know, if anyone asks, well, where are you going? Or if you're trying to bring on that investment, you just slap this report on the table and you're just like, it's all in the report, you know? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So tell me about um, participating in some of these startup weekends, you know, the couple that you've done and how people can use this as a way to kickstart their projects and, you know, receive those first rounds of funding. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, They are incredibly fun. Uh, if anyone's ever had an inkling to go into entrepreneurship, 
um, or tech, uh, definitely check out one of these startup weekends. Um, and they definitely skew heavier towards technology, but you do not need to be a technologist to compete. So, you know, if you've got an app idea, you could have the most skilled developer in the world build it, but you still need to market it. You need to sell right. it. And so that's what these uh, events are about. So they generally start with an opening night. Everyone pitches, just a one minute kind of pitch. People vote and they break down into smaller teams. So if your team is one of the top vote getters, a team surrounds you. If you don't make that cut, you just join another interesting idea. Mm. And then you just spend the rest of it building as quickly as you can to something um, of an MVP. You validate it with your market research and all that um, to culminate in a five-minute pitch at the end in which you're doing a full presentation and all that. And if you have a really good team, it teaches you all the fundamentals of what it takes to build a startup. Mm. And if you are fortunate that your idea gets selected on that night one, you can do a lot of that groundwork that sometimes takes people months because I've met with people and they'll be like, I have this great idea. And then they'll try to get home after work and spend a couple hours writing the business plan and they're by themselves. And it is just absolutely soul crushing. Right. And these events can, you know, really give you all the highs of entrepreneurship in just a, a complete microcosm, if you will, of other people that just want to build something. So, um, yeah, yeah. The, the competitive aspect is fun of it. Um, and it's fun to win, but that is so secondary to what these things are actually about. Yeah. And I see a lot of times, um, people will go in these and they will build something that weekend, but they don't always continue with it later. And, uh, you guys, you know, kept going with, um, Solace. And so tell me a little bit like about working in that startup weekend and how you got it to the point that you're like, yeah, let's actually keep going with this. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is pretty unlikely that teams move forward. And so we were different in that. So the, the play with gravity was, and this is how I sold my original, uh, not my original, my current co-founder on it is we were at the bar and I was pitching him on the idea. And I said, if we go to startup weekend, if we can win this thing, we have a new level of credibility. Hmm. We can start talking to investors or accelerator programs. And then we have something to say that, you know, this is something that's been reasonably vetted. We've got, you know, Kind of this upfront work and even though we don't have an exit yet or some of the other indicators if we're prime for an investment it was something and so that was a play on that one so we knew we were going to develop the product after the weekend win lose or draw mm. but the motive the whole time was to take the first place to be able to use as kind of a proverbial flare gun you know to signal to local investors that we were the real deal um, and we were fortunate to kind of succeed on that tactic um, and it was a similar play with Solace. Um, Solace was definitely much more aggressive in terms of our tactics of how to win it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, after winning two of these in a row, you know, my co-founder and I have decided that we would not go back to any future ones because, you know, that's really not the point. Um, you know, uh, maybe we'll go back in a mentorship role. But for Solace, it was absolutely this needs to win and this needs to be built and if we can use this as a signal that we've really got something special that can springboard us to the next steps. So yeah, we've just kind of kept the Slack, Discord, and email you know, open with those other teams. And uh, everyone just kind of stays on board remotely. And it's fun. I mean, some folks have not stayed with us, which is more than fine. Um, but 
you know, I'd say the vast majority have, which is pretty unique, I guess. Yeah. And so in those startup weekends, like you're often, you know, combining um, different people into a team. And now you, you know, mentioned that you are still in contact with some of those people. So how do you, you know, manage those people and, um, you know, get everyone together to bring that vision to life? Yeah, I mean, the way we currently run both entities is more or less it's Patrick and I at the helm, you know, kind of chartering the course um, with everyone who's a part of these different entities at this moment while we're still in the fundraising process. Uh, we just kind of throw everything out there. We open source all of our work mm. and people can kind of freely weave in and out uh, to different projects or activities uh, that they feel like they have expertise. So. I don't get really any value out of people when I tell them you need to do this, but I do get a lot more output when I put it out there and say, Hey, I'm working on something. And if it catches someone's interest and they're like, Hey, I want to work on this too. We actually build the thing because it, it shifts the mindset from you are being given orders and you have to work to right. collaboratively build something. And um, this is going to help build the greater vision of it. Absolutely. So you're finding those people that are like have a real interest in it and they're like, this sounds like something great, something I actually want to put my time into rather than forcing them to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't force people to do things they don't want to do. Um, I mean, there's the rare exception to that when I need someone to just manage something and delegate my time to, you know, that, or if I need someone to really learn a skill and I know they're going to keep needing it, but the 99% of the time it is just, um, you know, it's, it's come as you go kind of work style, which I find really refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to dive into a little bit of your values as a person. Um, and so one of those things is, you know, no matter the community, whether it's entrepreneurs or transgenders or an entire city, um, you have this um, ability to be a really strong advocate. And I was wondering, what does it really mean to you to be an advocate for a community of people? Yeah, I guess, I guess the way I see it is that I see my life as very, very, very fortunate. Um, obviously, there's things that I want for myself and I hope to change for the better. But by and large, I am in an extremely privileged position in my life. Mm. And so to be an advocate means that I'm taking that privilege and I'm effectively using it as some sort of lever or crowbar to equalize the playing field for other folk who have been um, disproportionately knocked down a few pegs by no doing of their own. Mm. Uh, so to, to advocate is not just kind of virtue signaling in me saying, Hey, like I'm one of X and I can, you know, uh, come to me with all your problems. I'll solve it. It's like, no, no, no. I have something more than you do. And in fairness, we should make sure that we are as close to equal as possible. Mm. And that's, that's kind of the zeal, whether it is the social issues or whether it is the entrepreneurial one, you know, with, with any organization, or seeking political office, you know, your, your job is to be kind of the last person to get paid, compensated, or praised. You know, my, my job is to take people's most valuable time, valuable resource on earth, which is time, and make it something more. Mm. And so I guess that's where I see my advocacy work really stemming from, or just nature of wanting to help raise everyone up. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you did a TED Talk talking about apathy, sympathy, and empathy. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, treating all pains with empathy, empathy, you know, having a collective ownership of that pain and problems that people have, um, I feel like really translates into your work, especially in solace. Um, and so how has empathy showed up in your life and in your businesses? 
Yeah, I mean, empathy is definitely kind of the core way to connect with your end user. And end user is a very sanitized term, but you know, it, whether it's nonprofit, the people that are being impacted by its work, or for profit, the people that are having a, a, a better life experience because they're using your product. Um, you know, I want to make sure that I am always just trying to feel other people's circumstances to the maximum so I can create something that solves legitimate pain. Mm -hmm. I don't want to create a solution and just shoehorn it into the system and then have people, you know, remix or repurpose it to actually fit their actual needs. Right. That happens so often in business or nonprofit work or anything is that people have these great ideas and they get so focused on bringing it to life because it is their idea, their baby. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't um, really kind of consider the outside opinions of what people want. And so, you know, I, I guess to be empathetic is to, to realize that other people have kind of that same attachment to ideas and solutions. And, and my job is to try to find a way to make them work versus trying to shut them down and say, no, 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 only my unique perspective, you know, can have ownership over a solution. It should just be, no, what's everyone's perspective over what the solution should be? And can I, you know, concoct something that addresses all of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, understanding, you know, the people that you're trying to serve to really dive down into what their problem, what their pains are, and having the empathy for that is really going to allow you to make a better solution um, rather than, like you said, trying to shove yours down their throat um, because that's, you know, the idea that you had. It's like, no, you need to take a step back and really understand the people that you're, you're trying to help. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that comes with it, too, and this is, you know, ever so slightly tangential, but, you know, with with my job is my job is to become as obsolete as I can as quickly as I can. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of, you know, with ideas and the solutions is that, you know, my job is just trying to get, get out of the way of making that solution viable. You know, I just see myself as the conduit for other people's expertise to actually pull something off. And so if I get to a point that, you know, I have kept my ears open, I have found all the right people um, and I'm no longer needed, you know, that's, that's success. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if everyone has the easiest time with doing that because we all get attached to our work. Right. Yeah. So I was going to ask, how do you start cultivating this in yourself so you can start recognizing that? I mean, I, I think the, the, the trick is, is that it just requires that mindset of like, why are you going into something? Mm -hmm. You know, if you go into any sort of project, product, et cetera, and you can kind of think about the good it's going to do for other people or the good, the people that are working for you. And if you got nothing out of it at the end of the day, but everyone else prospered, would you still be happy? Mm. And if the answer is yes, then you're on the right track. But if the answer is no, I want to have more, I want to take it all in. I want to own 90% of the company and all these different things. Um, you know, that's going to, that's going to cause a lot of just failures in the business as is. Right. So it doesn't even need to be like this philosophical shift in nature of being like, well, I'm going to try to be this better person. Uh, it's just, it's kind of a survival business tactic. So I, I don't know how people really get into that apart from being bitten by the failures of not doing it enough times to realize that they need to shift. Uh, but if they do want to try to hedge against it, it would just be thinking, how do I get everyone else, uh, whether it's my user, my employee, my partner ahead 
and out of this thing um, in a way that they're in a better position than when they came in. Right. Absolutely. Um, and when you're thinking about this, are you looking at um, a large group of people that you're like, I'm going to help all of them? Or are you like, if I can just get this out and help one person, um, where do you kind of fall on that looking of your success, you know, in the things you're doing? Yeah, it varies. It varies from company to company. So there's this one company I have an interest in right now, small equity position. And I thought about the two founders and I just thought to myself, I'm like, I have to get these people through their first deal so they can get um, some sort of income for their first year. And then they're just going to, you know, kind of fly with their own wings. Right. Um, and so that was a very focused, you know, um, way of going about trying to, you know, move people forward. Solace, on the other hand, is kind of looking at the millions, you know, mm -hmm. looking at the much greater population because that is where we're best positioned to be able to do the most good. And so I, I think that's where I make that assessment of, okay, where am I going to have the most effective, you know, distribution of trying to do right by people. And if I can do it on a very large scale, I will. But at minimum, if my job is just getting one person move forward a little bit, um, that is that is an equal success. Mm, yeah, I think uh, it's good to have that sort of dynamic of like levels of how much scale of impact that you want to have. Um, and, you know, one of the things with you running for office and participating like in your local community, um, you know, mentioning that Spokane is really ripe for business growth and opportunity. Um, how can entrepreneurs start to have that local impact as well as a global one as, you know, connected as we are with the internet and all of that? Yeah. I mean, wh whether it's politics, uh, you can run for anything. It's not that hard to run for office. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, people get intimidated by it, but the attack ads aren't as bad as people make them out to be. Uh, your life does not get pilfered through as much as you fear. Um, it also depends on what office you're going for. But generally, people are very nice and supportive. Um, the other thing that people can do is they can vote, which mm -hmm. sounds obvious. But, you know, you look at, like, there's an upcoming election here in Spokane in 2019. It's an off year. You know, there's no congressional race. There's no presidential race. So mm -hmm. turnout is usually a lot smaller than what it normally is. We're talking like 25% of eligible voters will vote in the primary. So that means that your single vote has four times the power that it normally does. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way to make a very, very large impact because these are decisions that will have, you know, tectonic consequences on where we're going. Um, and, and it doesn't take a lot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, I think as with anything, ambition scales. So there are kind of that sequencing that is required to make those bigger and bigger impacts. And I think sometimes people kind of get hung up on trying to, you know, really shoot the moon on that first effort and they find out they can't and they get discouraged. Right. Now let's, let's think about how to ladder this. Okay, well, you did this last time. What's, what's the next level above it? Okay, you started your first company. It made it comfortable, you know, 100000 a year. You're able to draw an income from it. Okay, now let's go after the million-dollar per year business and so on and so forth. Yeah, so, is, is that how you have sort of used the businesses in your past as sort of stepping stones for, you know, that growth as, um, you know, in your business skills, as a person, um, in your leadership roles? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely leveraging the last for the next. I mean, you know, the startup that got us into uh, to be featured in Forbes, for example, mm -hmm. uh, that has carried so much weight for us moving forward. 
And so I could go with that next startup um, and it could be even in an earlier stage. Um, and I could have similar conversations and saying, hey, you've seen the efficacy of my work before. Imagine what I can do now that's been years later and I have all this experience between that interval and this interval. And so, yeah, I, I definitely use past experience to leverage, you know, my future ambitions. And I think it also just speeds up the process. You know, we went from, you know, Gravity is still trying to close a deal and it's been founded since November. So we're a couple months, you know, what, nine months or so or 10 months into the process. And it looks like we might be on the edge of this deal for the Series E round. Then you look at something like Solace and we're three months in and we're probably at very much a similar point in terms mm. of gravity, in terms of the trajectory. Yeah. So even if it doesn't get you accolade in terms of looking at the steps you took before, um, it just, it makes you so much more efficient. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Now tell me why you wanted to run to, op, uh, you know, for office because it's a, uh, seems a little, different step than, you know, an entrepreneur. And so I was wondering what came up there. Yeah. I mean, there were a, a number of reasons. One is that I saw that the person that was holding the seat, uh, specifically County commissioner, uh, they didn't have someone that was going to challenge them. Hmm. And so I just, I felt this compulsion. I, I was just like, I have to do something like, you know, public office and politics right now is a very, um, precarious time. It's very interesting. And I was just like, okay, what if I just threw my name in the hat and see what happened? And so that's kind of where it started. But the position itself, I was just motivated because it has not only legislative abilities, but more executive branch authorities and even some judicial. So it is really an executive type position. Mm. And instead of a business, it's for the county. And so I thought that there would be a transfer of skills on my end to be able to look at a lot of different sources of data and be able to sift out, you know, effective solutions. You know, how do you manage, you know, the needs of many and kind of find ways to elevate everyone rather than just trying to push the scale one way or the other. And so I think that's where you do see a number of people run for office and they do harken back to this experience and they say, yeah, I was, you know, a small business owner or something like that because the skills are largely transferable. Mm. Um, and that's not to suggest that, you know, there isn't something to be said about really hard political skills. You know, the people that do poli-sci and the people that have been legislative aides, that's a different right. type of politician. But um, I, I think those two um, are, are closer linked than many would initially assess. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Because <clears throat> I see entrepreneurs like, um, especially right now, tackling some really big problems in our world um, at all sorts of different levels. And um, historically, that's kind of been done in the political space. And so I'm wondering what sort of overlap between those two come up and when would you want to run for political office rather than be an entrepreneur or when do you want to tackle it from a business perspective rather than politics? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest overlap is that, you know, uh, people that own companies and people that are in politics is ultimately the, the end of the day is that they're selling an idea. Mm -hmm. You know, they're selling a dream. So in politics, you may have your own political staff. In entrepreneurship, you may have your own employees. Um, but they are doing the really, really hard work more times than not. And it's your job to be a champion for them. Right. You know, go out there and secure that next round of financing. Go out there and get this policy passed, whatever it's going to be. So that's where I think the overlap really kind of becomes most evident because um, 
you know, I'm just the humble orator, you know, I, I, I leverage, you know, my charisma as best I can to take the best ideas of, of others and put them into praxis. Mm. So in terms of making the distinction of when do you want to do in a political realm or when do you want to do in an entrepreneurial realm? Um, I think it comes down to two things. One, it's just the timing, you know, uh, same thing with business. You got to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, with politics, it's largely when it's the next election, what seats are open, who's running, who's the calendars on your left and the right. Um, and then if you're going to go for office, you're going to have to kind of brace for greater scrutiny because with business, you're serving more or less a customer that you are kind of creating, you know, you're creating your target, you know, demo or your the profile of your customer right. with politics, you know, everyone in the region is your customer. Right. So I don't know. I don't know when the right time is for everyone, but I, I think most people, um, just, it happens more serendipitously than I think most would want to admit. Mm. Um, Cause I think we all want these kind of tales of grandeur of like how we got founded and how we got started. Like, right. you know, the apple fell out of the sky and I was like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Gravity. It's a dating app. And you know, more so it's kind of, you get lucky. And it's just like, Hey, like, have you ever thought about running for office? Cause there's an election in six months. Like, sure, I'll do it. I've got the time. So <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a huge thing that um, entrepreneurs have that advantage of is kind of like jumping on an opportunity, seeing it and giving it the, what the hell basically let's try and do yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's kind of just a, a brazen attitude towards potential failure. Mm. And I, I think that's why entrepreneurs are particularly well adept to go after uh, politics because anyone who's been in the industry long enough has just perpetually failed. And so for them to be able to say, well, if I lose, it's no big deal. I think they have the wherewithal to actually, you know, see it to the finish line. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the, the beauties of entrepreneurship is it allows you to reinvent and sort of evolve your own identity um, in a way that helps the greater good as we've been talking about. And how do you think identity plays a role in our lives and in our relationship with others? Yeah, I mean, identity is definitely the lens in which you initially see the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, let's say, let's say I'm making, well, let's just look at gravity or something like that. Um, it's a dating app. And so my identity is being a member of the LGBTQ community. Inclusion is going to be in the framework of how I make a product. Right. So I, I think that stuff is really important. I think it's also equally important that you realize that your own identity can create blinders and you can have those blind spots. And that allows you to seek out other people with different identities who can speak to those different experiences. Mm. You know, I, I mean, there, I, I forget who exactly said it and I'm sure many have, but you know, inclusion inspires innovation. And that's something that, you know, I know that my identity has really kind of been a core of any product I'm working on or any campaign we're working on. Like in 2018, our political team had people from both ends of the political spectrum, um, mm -hmm. all different walks of life. And at times it got really heated. I mean, we had some really, really strong opinions going back and forth, but everyone's unique identity allowed us to create a much more holistic solution. And, and I think that's where a lot of our appeal came from. And even with our products, if you can have more people at the table, it's going to create something with greater appeal. Right. And 
the one really simple thing to look at, and I don't have any experience in this industry, but like, you know, those virtual reality headsets, like the Oculus and the Vive yeah. and all that. Well, if you look at the earlier iterations on them, you'll notice that the headband doesn't necessarily accommodate someone with, you know, long hair, if they have a ponytail or something, or earrings with the headphones and all that. So that's just an example where you think, you're like, okay, well, they probably didn't have a lot of designers and they created something that was reflective of their own identities, but they mm. probably could have benefited by bringing other folk in to create that, uh, that kind of more perfect product. Right, yeah. Um, how do you uh, sort of separate sometimes, like sometimes you get so wrapped up into your business and that identity being part of it, that when something happens bad to it, you know, we all call it our baby, um, that it takes that crushing hit. And so how do you kind of separate yourself sometimes, even though you're pouring so much into it? Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of do have to have that, that detachment to it that when things don't go well. I mean, I think just by virtue of seeing so many failures over the last decade or so, I've learned that it's not personal. Mm. And I can do the postmortem on the business. Mm. And I think that's a really healthy thing to do when things don't work out to sit down and write that one page document and just say, this is what I was going for. This is what happened. Here was the output and here's the ultimate failure. And here's why I think it went wrong. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to share that document with anyone, but I know at times that even just putting it pen to paper and being able to spell it out, you can't just write over and over again. Like it was my fault. People hate me. People don't like me. Like that's right. just not good business writing. So that that's kind of how I don't take things personally anymore because you just you look at the data or if they're in absence of data you have to just kind of chalk it up to saying okay it didn't work for one reason or the other but if I take it personally it does not change the outcome Correct. it's not going to rewrite history and it's not going to most certainly not going to make me any more effective going into the next one because if I've got this big old chip on my shoulder and I think everyone's coming after me because um, you know they think that I'm less than um, I'm going to be less receptive to deal with them and have a productive relationship. So it's not to say that those things don't happen, but I cannot go to an investor, for example, and brazenly tell them that I think that they're going to think less of me and that's why they should give me a deal. <laughs> right. I can keep that in the back of my mind. It can frame how I want to approach them. It can you know, factor into my strategy. Um, but I, I cannot live in that headspace that, um, it was something that, you know, was personal, even, even if it absolutely was. Yeah. I think, uh, that's a, a really powerful, um, sort of practice is to get that down on paper, get it out. Um, because otherwise you get stuck in those negative thought loops and your brain starts searching for an answer. And most of the time you're going to be pretty hard on yourself, but when you actually get it out on a piece of paper and kind of start looking, okay, well, what actually happened? Um, you get some real data that, allows you to shift do better next time and realize that it wasn't all you it was actually you did this and this happened here and how could you have done that better mm -hmm. yeah yeah the, the practice of postmortems is definitely one i'd recommend um and it can be used for anything like we're talking total collapse of a business or even if you're doing sales calls you know i, I do that every time a call or a lead goes dead i write why it went wrong and as you just said you start getting data from that and you can see where the problem is rooted. And, and it just, it's a very illuminating and also pretty cathartic process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, before I get to my last question, um, where can everybody find you and the projects that you're working on? 
Yeah, so for Solace, uh, the nonprofit, people can visit uh, solace.lgbt. Uh, I think it's the coolest domain name in the world. <laughs> uh, so definitely check it out, if only for that. Uh, for Gravity, it's gravityproject.co. Um, we are still trying to secure .com, but apparently they're very expensive when you're trying to get mm -hmm. one word. Yeah. Uh, for FireDev, it's firedev.tech, T-E-C-H. Um, but honestly, and this is not just like a flex or anything like that, but people can just Google me and they'll find me at this point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. So my last question is how can we push the world to evolve? Yeah. I mean, it's a very open-ended question, but I think at the core of just about anything in this life, it is just kind of getting people exposed to different ideologies, different viewpoints, different workers, things like that. You know, what, what's that uh, quote that Mr. Rogers always carried around in his wallet? It's like, you could, you could never hate someone if you heard their story. Mm. And, and I think that holds true. I, I think when I work with people and they might be skittish about uh, working with a trans person and I show them, you know, the efficacy of my work, um, it changes their viewpoint on what other trans people uh, bring to the table. Um, if I'm running for office and I've got a progressive viewpoint on something and I sit down with conservative folks and we have a productive conversation of how it raises everyone up, um, those people might look at other people who'd be typically aligned as a progressive with a different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's not particularly fun to be the, um, the, uh, the standard bearer for a community, but we all have to do it in different ways. And uh, it does kind of create that evolution, um, whether it is a, as a society or as a small collective, um, that we just, we, we know each other, you know, we know um, each other's stories and we start empathizing with them because they don't seem so foreign and scary. Yeah, and I think it's powerful um, realizing that somebody will have to take that step up to be the person that's sharing everyone's story um, to allow that understanding to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the other thing to just, especially for people that may be becoming from a position where they feel like they are getting dealt a lesser hand, and they absolutely might be, um, and it is going to be inherently harder for them because they have to balance being that standard bearer while also dealing with kind of the lesser of sometimes of what people can do and how they can treat people. Um, I, I guess just owning that it's not fair as fuel to make life more fair for people to follow in your wake mm. is, is kind of the, the best way we can keep the optimism out there rather than just silo, siloing ourselves and devolving versus evolving, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that so much. Robbie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Definitely go check out Solace and Gravity. I think um, Robbie is working on some amazing projects, doing amazing things. And so um, I would definitely check those out. Hey, you. Yes, you. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, keep evolving.